everybody. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I am Ross. And I'm Gordon. Gordon, what are we talking about today? Well, I think you provoked me into doing something on cold weather photography. Well, I have to give you credit. It was entirely your idea. <laughs> I just made the shivering noise. So, <coughs> Gordon, to help our our happy listeners, uh, and by the way, listeners, thank you for your emails that you are sending in. We really do appreciate it. Uh, send a shout out this week to Juan uh, for sending in the question. Much appreciate that. Gordon, how do you define cold weather photography? Oh, that's a very good question. To which I'm not sure I have an answer. However, uh, let's call it making images by placing a cold hunk of conducting metal against your face. <laughs> and cold, as far as I can identify it, is a continuing continuum of temperatures from slightly shiver producing to, oh my God, I'm going to die. And the effects of this are likely uh, a continuum as well. And if I may throw in the other side of this, is that whichever part of the spectrum you are not prepared to deal with, that is the part that will occur at the most inappropriate moment. Well said, sir. Reattributable in one of two ways. Murphy's Law. <laughs> well, yeah. Shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> or, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Absolutely. And that's, uh, they're, they're all cousins of the same family. They really are. And uh, we've both done a fair bit of cold weather photography. And I would say that some days have been wonderful. And there are these, those other days where it has been less wonder, so wonderful. So why would a photographer choose to go out in the cold? What's in it for them? Um, well, the air is maybe not cleaner, but certainly appears clearer with less atmospheric haze. Um, Sun comes up later, so you don't have to be up at ungodly hours to catch that magical light. The shadows are longer, the textures are intensified, and sunsets occur earlier. And then there's that whole ice crystal, ice formation, snow on the ground thing. And it's altogether very, it's a magical world when it's clean. And I think the where when it's clean thing is is um, a fair statement. But you talked about things like the sunsets and even sunrise. If you've got yourself in a great position and there's you know some snow on the ground that's still looking like snow, or maybe a sheet of ice over that snow, all the colors, you've got a new kind of reflecting space, kind of like reflecting off a lake in the summertime. Mm -hmm that gives you an opportunity to convey intent, tell your story, you know, build a, build an image that is not just transitory. Yes. So we know, we both know, because we, we've known folks like this, it gets cold, camera goes in closet. Yep. 
what we were trying to encourage folks to do is it's going to get cold. I mean, we're in Canada. That's a given. It's a given, yeah. Um, but there are seasons in most places. Mm-hmm. And don't let a season perhaps get in the way of making photographs. So when we go out in the cold, though, there are things that impact us. As a person, what impacts us when we're cold from a human perspective? Um, when you're cold, you're miserable. That's, some of us are just miserable. Thank you. Uh, I wasn't referring to you. <laughs> no, but when you're right, you're right. Um, but uh, your, your body reacts differently. Your body tries to keep itself warm. And therefore, it starts to burn calories at an amazing rate. And you can get extremely hungry just standing still for a couple of hours. Um, you dehydrate easily because the air is dry, you're evaporating uh, moisture from your skin. Uh, if you start breathing heavily for any reason and you're, you're vaporizing all that, and uh, you may not realize it, but you do get dehydrated. So you have to be able to consciously plan for that. This is, that sir, that's very telling, just on that point alone. You know, yeah. as a former, as a former down, downhill skier and cross-country skier, you're cold, you don't feel like you're sweating, but your mouth is dry. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And those are indicators that... Hey, it's time to take in some fluids. Yes. Now, can does the cold impact any other parts of the body? Uh, well, there's your hands, uh, which you seem to need for this uh, activity. Mm-hmm. And uh, hands, hands and feet are a problem because... Uh, when you stop feeling either one, your your day rapidly goes downhill. For sure. The problem with the hands is you have to find out a way of keeping them warm with the contradictory aspect of you've got to be able to use your camera controls. And those are two diametrically opposed uh, objectives. Yeah, I would, I would concur with that. And also think about it, you know, if you're taking, you know, gloves or mitts on and off, or you don't have a, a good quality hat, or even if your face is exposed, if there's any kind of wind, to the point that you made earlier, that's just ripping the moisture right out of you. And it's quite possible to get very dry skin, even cracked skin, mm-hmm. bleeding skin, um, you know, if you're very lightly skinned, uh, just because it got cold out. So those are, those are considerations from the human side. Now, on the camera side, um, I have to presume that most of us these days are using an electronic camera. And the electronic camera requires a battery. Mm-hmm. And having grown up in the north, um, we pl- had to plug the car in every night. Otherwise, in the morning, the battery would go, no. Oh! No, <laughs> click, click. And that was it. And I believe 
you actually found out some found some good data on the impact on a, on a battery in a camera. Um, yes, uh, one of the um, pieces of information I was looking at. Uh, they said it, uh, you know, about 25, 27 degrees uh, centigrade. Um, your batteries will hold 100% charge for a prolonged period of time. You drop the temperature to minus 18 or so, and you've only got 50% of your battery uh, retaining a charge. Uh, with use, that obviously declines very rapidly. But I also found uh, a gentleman located in Alaska who should know a thing or two about photographing the Iditarod, which he does, that uh, if you take the battery out of the camera and tuck it into a warm place and replace it with another good battery, a warm one, uh, Given a period of time, that battery will warm up and will regain its remaining charge and can be reused again for a period of time until it gets cold again. Yeah, and th this is a very good point because I've seen folks say, well, my batteries are, are bad because they don't hold the charge in the cold. They, the principle of physics involved actually is, no, they, they hold the charge, but it's cold. Yes, and that slows the motion of, of atoms and such. And consequently, they can't discharge Good. efficiently. <clears throat> so this idea of keeping batteries warm somehow, uh, next to your body is, is pretty good if it's next to your core. Uh, keeping it in your cold hand, probably not going to help much. Uh, but keep it next to your core, good idea. And you talked about ha switching them out from time to time. Yes, uh, again, this uh, Alaskan gentleman uh, makes a habit of, uh, I'm guessing, using a um, indelible marker on his batteries, and he's got them labeled as one, two, three, etc., and then he replaces them uh, in sequence. So one comes out, two goes in, two comes out, three goes in, four comes in, and then he starts from one again. So that by that time, he has regained a significant portion of his charge. And that's great advice, uh, something that's missed most of the time. We often hear the guidance, well, take lots of batteries. But we very often don't hear the warm and rotate. Yes. And if you have a lot of batteries and you sit, have them sitting in the same pocket of your camera bag, um, if they're not marked you could well be putting a bad battery into a, a already depleted battery. Right. So label them. I understand that you can get a whole pack of silver Sharpies for $5 at yes, Amazon. Yes, you can. And, uh, oh, it's not as pretty as a fancy label. But you know what? doesn't come off. doesn't peel off. works really well. Also, it reminds you, if you're in a warming shack with a whole bunch of other photographers, which batteries are yours? <laughs> yes, there is that. <laughs> so you leave with the same number that you arrived with. Not less and definitely not more because that's not cool. Right. He did make another point as well, um, which I hadn't really thought about, but he, he made a big point of 
use original equipment. Do not use third-party batteries, etc., because they just, they're good in a pinch, but they just do not stand up to the abuse that uh, the original equipment uh, will do. I really appreciate you bringing that to light, Gordon. You know, um, as you know, and some folks know, I was involved in photographic retail for quite a, a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And batteries are one of those things, kind of like filters, which we talked about. Yep. People spend $2,000 on camera, but aren't willing to spend the $90 for the OEM spare battery. They want to spend $30 on Bob's battery. And I mean no offense to Bob. I'm just using him as an example. Um, these batteries, they're often a case that you get what you pay for. It absolutely is. And the other thing to consider is if you've got a very modern camera, like say from Olympus, Canon, Nikon, Lumix, or Sony, there's circuitry in those batteries that the camera is looking for. Mm -hmm. And if the camera doesn't find it, you may find other functions don't work properly as well. Right. One is definitely not going to work right, and that's battery uh, charge remaining. Okay. Your battery meter with an off-brand battery measured in your camera, that's roulette. <laughs> and okay. uh, anyone who's ever played roulette knows that the house wins. Always. Uh, so that's a, that's a really good point about the batteries. Um, it's false economy. Yes, to, to go cheap. Yeah. Okay, so you talked about how the air is clearer mm-hmm. because there's less haze, there's less moisture mm-hmm. in it. But you also said that that air is sucking moisture away from you. Mm-hmm. It must be taking that moisture and holding it someplace. Mm-hmm. Like if I go outside and I exhale, Mm -hmm. I see a cloud of what looks like steam. It's not, it's water vapor. Mm -hmm. You wear glasses. If you go outside in the cold, do they ever fog up on you? Oh, yeah. So that must mean that there is moisture in the air. Uh, Yeah. Or warm, warm, something warm making contact with the cold. With something cold. You're basically creating a cloud. Yes. Well, if that'll show up in your glasses, let's show up anywhere else. Yep. Like where? Well, it's that sort of a hazy thing that you see when you look through your viewfinder because your lens is on a deep, deep freeze for a period of time. And if your lens is okay, then maybe your viewfinder is just frozen as well. So, I think, I think we'll recognize that we've seen, um, you know, fogging or condensation on the lens element. We're very likely to see it on the viewfinder because we're constantly changing the relative temperature. Mm -hmm. Your eye is warm. Everything else is cold. You'll probably see it on the LCD a fair bit because your face is warm. The LCD is the one you're using closest to your nose. and, uh, And your nose is blowing... Just what do you think is blowing? Well, 
hopefully it's just warm wet air. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to need a bigger cloth. But you're right. And we are aware of those. But remember that condensation's happening elsewhere. Yes. And how much does electronics love water? Not. Right. So you may, th- you may want to think about that in terms of going through the transition. That I, and I want to talk about transitioning from warm to cold and cold to warm um, uh, as we move ahead. But what, does that moisture have impact on any functional elements? Uh, you brought up one that I think is really relevant. It doesn't impact me because my cameras don't have one, but... Yeah, on the, the viewfinder, for instance, is uh, everything goes wrong with that. Uh, a, it's very. Let me let me back up a bit. Uh, some cameras uh, they probably have more than one method of accessing a control, but I've seen uh, some of my colleagues. Every time they go to make a change, they have to access the data on the LCD screen and make the changes over there. What, what like a touch panel? Like a touch panel. Huh, how's and, that work out? Uh, not well. No. Well, apparently it gets very slow. Uh, so you... you well, the, the frustration level is high because you're trying to make a change and nothing's happening. Um... The changes occur slowly. If you're recording, uh, trying to see anything that's got a video component to it, the video doesn't track well. It becomes uh, stuttering, if you wish. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's important that folks know that LCD technology stands for liquid crystal, crystal display. display, and we know, and it's true for all liquids. Get them colder. They move slower. Right. Now, we do hear about LED-based LCDs. And that just means that an LED is providing illumination. Okay. But there's still, it's still an LCD. And so that is going to have definitely a deprecating impact on the performance of any LCD. Not just in performance, but also in terms of color rendition. Because the color change involves movement. Right. We're changing the nature of how the crystals are aligned. Um, so that's a, that's a big issue. Does it affect an electronic viewfinder to the same extent? Well, it can because electronic viewfinders, EVFs, are LCDs. Okay. Now, they're very small, and they are typically better shielded, obviously, than the right. LCD on the back of the panel. But it could. It could. I can't provide any data on that because yeah. none of my cameras have one. Um, but in the earlier days of EVFs, actually, that's not true. I have an EVF for my Leica. Um, it's actually an Olympus EVF. Right. You can buy the Leica one for $1,200 or the Olympus one for a hundred bucks. They are identical, uh, but sorry, <laughs> I digress. And yeah, it slows, it's, it definitely slows down its responsiveness. And a lot of the old photographers who come from, let's call it the analog viewfinder, preferred analog viewfinders because they were not impacted by excess cold or even right. excess heat. Yes. 
Um, so that, that that's a valid point. That doesn't mean don't use an EVF. It just means be aware that it may not be, you know, 90 degrees in August responsive. Right. And I, I guess the, well, Olympus, I know, um, uh, makes an issue out of their cameras being heat and cold resistant. And if I'm recalling my facts right, uh, they mentioned something about minus 10 degrees. Now, they didn't say whether it was centigrade or Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Minus 10 is not all that cold. In either, on either scale. Well, certainly minus 10 Celsius centigrade is not as cold as minus 10 Fahrenheit. Right. But I think that, uh, or maybe it's one, it's, it's one or the other. Look it up. I can't do yeah, five-ninths math in my head anymore. But whatever it is, yeah, that's not that cold. And most of these guys are going to go full stop dead at minus 20. Right. So maybe, again, something that we need to yeah, think about. Something to be thought about. You know, one of the things that came up many, many years ago, and this is in the days of mechanical cameras, they use lubricants. Okay. If you have your oil changed, remember we use multi-grade oils? Yep. Like, I think 5W30 is mm-hmm. pretty common for mm-hmm. most manufacturers today. Okay. That means when it's cold, it moves like a light oil. Okay. And as it heats up, it moves like a heavier grade oil. Okay. So you get a consistent, what they call a consistent level or semi-consistent viscosity, thickness of the lubricant. But when lubricants get cold, they're slower to move. Right. So when we're using manual wind cameras and manual shutters and all that stuff, we're very cognizant of the impact of cold, but also very cognizant of the impact of condensation because mm-hmm. that cold air maybe get between the lens and the body. In a film camera, it definitely got between the back and the front of the camera because you have to open it. You have to open it to change film. Uh, And most cameras today will say that they are weather protected. Mm -hmm. They don't say weather sealed. Nope. And protected and sealed are two very different things. Easy, easily demonstrable not with your camera, with an eyedropper of water. Right. So if you think of this just in the context of condensation, uh, a very old tip I learned when I, was com- when I was coming up was when you're leaving the house, your camera equipment that you're going to take with you, mm-hmm. bodies, lenses, whatever, is in a sealed plastic bag. Right. And you want to let it acclimate. Yep. So you leave it sealed until it gets cold. Yep. And then when you're done, back in the bag. Yep. So when you go back inside, you give it time to acclimate as well. Yep. Uh, And the reason for the plastic bag is... Purely to prevent the transmission of air, 
So a breathable sandwich bag is not the right answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, freezer bags are great. Mm-hmm. Because you want the condensation to happen on the outside of the bag. Right. And the thing I would note to everybody, just because you don't see the condensation doesn't mean it's not there. Mm-hmm. So you, wanna, you may want to think about that. Now, you talk about this temperature transition having impact on other parts of the camera too. You make specific reference to the battery mm-hmm. and to the memory card. Yep. And I think that's a really good piece of advice for the listeners. Is there a particular reason you call that out? Uh, yeah, before you start doing any of these things, you want to take your battery and your memory cards out. Um, put them back in your camera bag, put them wherever it is you're going to keep everything. But uh, if there is condensation and it does get onto either your battery or your memory card, I suspect that it will have a derogatory effect. And you're right. You know, most of these uh, devices are, the contacts are metal. And metal can cor- will corrode over time. Right. So the use, again, of that plastic bag works great. Um, I like your idea, though, of taking the battery and the memory card out of the camera because invariably they're the first things that people start playing with mm-hmm. when they get back inside. Yep. And you want to have temperature equalization occur because a short in an electrical system You've lost your data. It's bad. It's bad. You know, you could lose an image. Um, You could even short out the battery itself. I can't say I've seen that happen. Now, I have seen, and I want to come back to this third-party battery thing that you talk about. Oh, the contacts are gold-plated. That seems to create this illusion that that is condensation-proof. It's not. I don't see why it would be. Um, Maybe rust-proof, but that's... (laughs) And that's the only value that a small gold electroplate will do is reduce corrosion. Okay. It doesn't improve conductivity. It doesn't pass electrons better than anything else. I mean, think of it. It's like a piece of wax paper over your car. (laughs) It's not doing a whole lot, and you may be paying more for it. So watch the the McMarketing uh, in some of this stuff. Now... I know you like to do a type of photography where the cold can be really impactful. Um, yep. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Um, well, I've tried freezing bubbles. Um, I've tried taking videos of the bubbles while they're freezing. Uh, I've tried to do time-lapse uh, stuff with bubbles while they're freezing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I can see, well, th- for one thing, for it to freeze, it's got to be really cold. Uh, so, all the bad things of the camera that are going to happen to the camera are going to happen to the kind of photography that I like to do. So. Because it's an extended period of time, out in the cold, yep. where the camera is drawing power. Yes. So, just bear that in mind. You know, 
minus 20 may not be the place for the three-hour time lapse. <laughs> no. It, 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 may, it may simply not work for you. Yeah, it did. Um, so some, uh, something like, like that. Um, so we talk about the risk of moisture and things freezing. and Can we do anything when the camera is already outside to help mitigate some of those effects? Um, I, did, I was going to mention um, we, we like to keep the camera warm. And sometimes we say, well, I'm going to put it under my jacket. And from some of the stuff I read today, they say, whatever else you do, don't do that. Yeah, I, I'm with that 100%. Because what's your body doing? Your body is probably sweating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you are trekking from point A to point B, your, your body is sweating. And since no matter how good your Gore-Tex jacket, uh, there is a higher level of moisture uh, between your skin and the outside. Yep. And if your camera's there as well, uh, that's asking for the condensation. And they made a big point not only of the camera controls, but the condensation occurring between all those layers of glass and the lens. Yeah, that's good. possible. That's not good. No, it's not. So we haven't really talked about it, and it always comes up, and, and so I want to t quickly touch on camera coats and lens coats. Okay. The illusion is that they're going to keep the camera and the lens warmer. You don't actually want that for all the reasons you talked about. Mm -hmm. However, these neoprene coats and neoprene jackets, or in olden days, the leather camera case, right. it acts as an effective windbreak. Yes. And as anyone who's spent time in the cold knows, it's the wind that freezes you. Right. It's not just the ambient temperature. It's the movement of air mm -hmm. that causes the dissipation of heat. Right. So if you are working in intense cold, or moderately intense cold, those neoprene jackets can be okay. But you want to make sure that they can breathe. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're going to turn into little condensation socks. Right. And if you're going to go real cold, the answer to that is actually a scuba housing. Uh, what housing? A scuba housing. A scuba housing, yes, of course. You know, put your camera in that housing, and the camera is actually very well insulated in the housing. Right. Because, uh, as divers will know, water temperature decreases pretty rapidly as we, mm -hmm. we go deeper. Mm -hmm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to protect the camera. So you talked about the fellow photographing the Iditarod. I don't know the, the gentleman you're speaking of, but I had an opportunity, oh, God, it'd be 20 years ago to f talk to someone who did. We were shooting with a mechanical camera at the time. Mm -hmm. And he kept it in a scuba housing. Right. He actually kept two in a scuba housing. Because it was, a, it was a way to maintain two different lenses without exposing, at the time, the mirror and his mechanical shutter. Right. 
to, you know, chilling winds. I mean, if the husky doesn't like the weather, your camera will not like the weather. <laughs> yes. And having sure. owned many husky wolf crosses, it's got to be crappy for them not to like that. So we've established that, you know, the mechanics of the camera can potentially slow down, but the debilitating effect is probably going to be greater than the electronics. Yes. You talked about the LCD screen becoming sluggish. Yes. But what happened, how does it, is its visibility ever impacted? Uh, well, winter is going to be one of two things. It's either going to be horribly overcast with snow and ice blowing in your eyes and over the screen, so you can't see it. Or it's going to be very bright, with beautiful blue sky, and you still can't see the screen. So if you shoot with an, with an LCD as your primary mode of focusing and composing and controlling, if you have that function, uh, you're not going to be a happy person. And we do agree, you know, before someone says, hey, idiots, you know, you can turn up the brightness of the LCD screen. Absolutely. But only so far. Right. And then the big risk is what I find happens after. You don't turn it back down. Don't turn it back down, right. And then you look at the LCD screen to determine exposure. Go, oh, that's too bright. Yep. Dial down the exposure in the camera. And this always happens with the people who think that manual is best. Yes. And they go, oh, why are my pictures so dark? My camera's broken. Yeah. I can count on more than two hands. Fortunately, I've only got <laughs> two. The number of folks who have had this happen to them. Yep. So be that bear that in mind if you're dealing with this super bright, uh, hard-to-read LCD system. Now, if you've got a viewfinder, even your EVF, mm -hmm. problem going to be less obvious because you're blocking all that extra light. Right. So I think this is one of the real value propositions behind the new mirrorless cameras that have EVFs. Yes, sir. Um, you already talked about the ghosting or tearing effect that we can sometimes see in video. Um, and that's why professional video cameras have not only chillers, but they'll also have internal warmers Okay. to help prevent that. Like, how are you going to look at it otherwise? Uh, and if you've got an external view, an external view screen, which most, most serious videographers are going to use, it's going to run off its own power source. And part of that power is not only driving the display, it's also warming the sure. display, sure. Uh, on the, on the backside. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we recognize that LCDs and you mentioned specifically touchscreens, um, can become less responsive. So what if I can't use my touchscreen? Uh, if you don't have a secondary mechanism of doing that, you've got nothing. So most cameras, but not all, have mechanical or electromechanical buttons and dials. Yep. But if your camera doesn't, and the touchscreen becomes unusable, well, you're done. You're shooting done. shooting day that, is over. That shoot is, that, that shoot is over with. You know, put the camera in, in its uh, condensation protecting bag, and then when it goes back inside, 
it'll warm up and, and those functions will restore. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're going to die, but you do want to try to always have, I guess, options. Um, I really like, I want to reiterate that idea of keeping your batteries in a warm place and numbering them. Yep. So I know we're repeating ourselves, but just one more time, what's your guidance on this? <coughs> Sorry. Um, get a Sharpie, mark your batteries, uh, number them, place them, use them in sequence, remove them in sequence, and then recycle starting from the first one you take out should be the first one you use after you've gone through all your batteries. Uh, one other point that was raised uh, as far as staying warm, uh, the little hand warmers that you can buy in pretty much any store now, activate one and put it in your pocket with the batteries. Yeah, those little uh, foot warmer packs or hand warmer packs, they're great. And they don't generate so much heat that you're going to create a condensation risk. Right. Unless, of course, your pocket is made of plastic. Yes. Now, let's talk a little bit about Support because you said earlier that we are going to get more fatigued in the cold than we would in the warmth. Yep. So, what about our tripods? A double edged. A double edged tripod or a double edged sword? (laughs) Yes. Hands of a ninja. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you, you, You need a tripod. Uh, you're going to shiver if you've been out there for any given length of time you will be shivering to some extent and therefore you will uh, you will be affecting the quality of your image so you need to use a tripod but then there's the materials that the tripod is made of each of which is impacted in its own way by dropping temperatures Uh, aluminum Uh, If uh, anybody in the audience uh, is not from Canada, well, once it gets down about minus 30, if your tongue touches a piece of aluminum, your tongue is there until you can find a warm cup of coffee to pour over it. You're stuck. Literally, you're stuck. Literally, you're stuck. (coughs) And if you're not from Canada, go watch the old movie A Christmas Story. (laughs) where this is well documented not to say that we as children in canada ever caused this to happen to other children in the schoolyard because that would be wrong but it is an accurate description of what's going to happen with potential with an aluminum tripod and one of the things that i've seen actually seen happen is someone will remove their hand from a very warm glove right or warm mitt and they've got perspiration on their on their hand They grab hold of that aluminum tripod with perhaps lesser ability to let it go than they may have hoped for. Yep. 
So uh, contact with uh, contact with the metallic stuff in very cold temperatures is not good. No. Yeah, I think we can all come forward and say it's bad. Yep. There's a reason that ski poles are made out of fiberglass. Which is the other part because uh, you say, well, I don't have to worry about this because I've got a really good carbon fiber tripod and, you know, carbon fiber doesn't freeze. And, uh, I don't know whether it does or not, but I know it cracks. And it shatters, actually, with uh, with increasing cold. So, Well, Gordon, uh, you know all those people who say, why would I spend all that money on a Getzo carbon fiber tripod over a carbon fiber tripod? From I, Bob's store? I, I bought <laughs> online for $12. Um, yeah, carbon fiber cracks. Yeah. And, and it can... and. It is susceptible to freezing because it literally is a woven fiber. Uh, in that way, it's not much dissimilar from fiberglass, just tougher and lighter. Right. Um, we do see carbon fiber used successfully in things like cars and performance snowmobiles and ATVs. You don't freeze to it, and it may not be as inclined to shatter, that's going to have everything to do with the quality of the carbon fiber weave itself mm -hmm. and how the weave is done. Right. So while I am not a representative for Gitso or Really Right Stuff, um, I do recommend those lines because they are tested in serious cold against shattering. Okay. You know, Gitso's carbon fiber mountaineer is actually tested in the Swiss Alps where apparently it gets rather chilly. And so just bear in mind that your bargain basement carbon fiber tripod, if you give that leg too hard a whack and it's freezing cold, you may have a multi-purpose leg uh, in short order. So just bear that in mind. Now, there is one other option for a tripod. You're not going to say wood, are you? Well, wood is pretty good at holding <laughs> up in the cold. But you know who doesn't hold up well carting wood in the cold? Uh, yes, uh, the, the person that's carting is in the wood. That'd be me. Yeah. Wooden tripods are amazing, uh, except for the parts that you have to manipulate, which are made out of metal. Right. Uh, and then you can freeze to a tripod that weighs 50 pounds. Um, wood is porous. So all that moisture in the air gets in and freezes and makes it heavy. It's a nice prick. It's a nice pretty picture. But the only person who's going to buy that wooden tripod is somebody who's never going to use it right. in the field because it's too freaking heavy. Right. Okay. So we've talked a lot about gear. What about the entity behind the gear? Um like you. Like you? Yes. Like you. Like today, when Gordon came by to help, you know, to record the intelligent parts of this podcast, uh, it's a bit it's a bit chilly and damp outside. And I, I commented to him on his, on his jacket. I thought it was a very nice jacket. And he said, yeah, it's not a warm jacket, so I layer. So why don't you talk a little bit about dressing for successful photography or videography when it's cold outside 
yes. Um, when I was thinking about this, I uh, philosophically came to the conclusion that in our current day and age, and I will have to add geographical location, uh, we know that winter comes, but we're really not that involved in it because, yes, it's cold, but we have easy access to warmth. Subways getting into a building, heat everywhere. Much of this is not available when, when you step outside. And we have to some extent lost the art of staying warm when it isn't. So the recommendations that I have always found is that the old days of the miners who would have uh, undershirts of cotton or something like that, uh, not good. Uh, cotton gets wet. Uh, you sweat in it, you get wet, uh, it freezes, and then you just get colder and colder. And by cotton, you're not talking just about like a cotton undershirt. Denim jeans. Denim jeans are our cotton. Our cotton. Yeah. And they are probably the worst thing. Yeah. If you're going to be out in the cold. Yes. Uh, wool is uniformly good. It keeps you warm even when it's wet. So should you slip in off the uh, beautiful river bank that you're trying to photograph, uh, it will uh, give you an element of protection uh, even, even when it's damp. Uh, so wool is good. Uh, the newest synthetics uh, will be equally good. But the principle behind all of these things that you wear next to your skin should be that if it comes makes contact with moisture, that moisture gets moved from your skin towards the outer layers. So there's a word that's used in advertising materials that I'm sure not everybody knows what it means, but everybody's seen it, that describes that process. That word is wicking. Wicking, sorry, yes. So... The idea is exactly as Gordon says. You're going to chill fastest the wetter you are. Yep. So get the wetness away from your, your body, your extremities, and your core through the use of materials that by their nature move the, the wetness away. Yes. Wool is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, if you are... Uh, a snowmobiler or a motorcyclist and you ride in cold temperatures. And you'll see a lot of advocates for merino wool. It's very fine, yep. very nice. Yep. Um, and as a cold weather motorcyclist, I can tell you it works a charm. Mm -hmm. But to a point that Gordon made, I also have synthetic, what we call underlayers. Right. That cost a lot less. Right that do as good, if not a better job, than a merino wool undersweater. Yes. Or under trousers, uh, sorry, we're in Canada, under First pants. That's right. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, uh, or long johns, or whatever word you want to call them. So you really want to get that natural sweat, because you're sweating whether you think you are or not, mm -hmm. 
um, it's your body. It, it's what it does. Right. Get it away from your skin. Now, but what do you do that after you've got that first layer, Gordon? Uh, you follow it with successive layers of increasing warmth, I guess would be as good a word as any. And the again, the principle is that when you're not doing anything, you need more warmth around you. But as you start moving and your body temperature starts going up, you need to shed those layers enough so that you're not forming a lot of condensation, but still enough to block the wind and provide sufficient warmth to keep you comfortable at that point in time. And many of the... Uh, if you get the the flyers from these various companies that and should you read them I think the companies have caught on to this idea this this whole concept of layering Uh, so the equipment for doing it is out there what we need to do is for us to have a recognition of what needs to be done and not take it lightly because uh, it makes a huge difference to how comfortable you're going to be. Yeah, this is this is a really important point, particularly if you are a serious photographer or videographer, and to achieve your creative goal means you're going to be out in the cold. Um, the concept of layering makes a lot more sense than the old model, which was Again, go watch the Christmas story. <laughs> Wrap the kid in a snowsuit so it doesn't move. Uh, that was very popular in the 40s. And even when I was a child, you know, 600 years ago, uh, we've learned that natural materials, downs, and at the risk of being labeled some kind of heathen, fur, are very good warming tools. Not only because they keep you warm, but because they will breathe to some extent. Mm -hmm. However, there are synthetics that weigh less, Mm -hmm. take up less space, and cost less that will do a great job. The other thing to think about is with some of these other materials, okay, so furs are are bad. Uh, Tell that to an Inuk person. Uh, we don't see furs so much anymore. But we've also seen an influx of extraordinarily expensive down-filled winter wear Mm -hmm. with an impermeable outer layer. Mm -hmm. You're going to get hot Mm -hmm. and sweaty Mm -hmm. and cold. Mm -hmm. Not a good choice. I'm not naming anything by name Canada something or other bird. But you don't need to spend $1,200 on a parka. You could get layered clothing, and and Gordon said there's lots of places that offer this. In our area, Mountain Equipment Co-op, Sale. Mox has taken over. um, Yeah. They've got all kinds of stuff. Mark's Work Warehouse, which is a Canadian store, but you'll find, um, you know, like Dick's Sporting Goods and places like that in America. Mm -hmm. 
they're going to have that sort of thing. Columbia has whole layer kits. Right. Uh, I'll take one from box one and one from box two and one from box three. Right. And there you've got your whole layer kit. Um, as a rider, uh, I use layers all the time. The, the products I use come from a company called Climb. Right. Uh, Climb comes out of Idaho. They know a little bit about cold, and yep. they know about activity in the cold. Right. Um, also, sometimes um, I think back to when I started downhill skiing, the jackets have evolved enormously. If I were going out skiing today, all of my equipment would be lighter, more mobile, Mm-hmm. and keep me warmer than every, anything I had back in the day. Now, that covers the jacket the, and the trousers, sorry for Americans, pants, uh, but there's more to it than that. There's our hands and our feet. Yes, well, and the, the core is the easy part of this. The hands and the feet are a bigger issue. So what do we do? Uh, well, your boots... A, you need boots. Uh, depending on what you're going to be doing, they should protect your ankles. They should support your ankles. Because uh, falling happens. Oh, yeah. Frequently. Um, insulated is good. Breathable and insulated is probably good. And breathable and insulated but waterproof, yes. Now that means, guys, that you may spend a little bit more on the boots, but you're going to get a higher quality product. It's going to last you longer. Uh, Again, coming from a motorcycling perspective, I've, over the years, owned lots of boots. Every pair of boots or riding shoes I have now are Gore-Tex. Yep. And there is absolutely nothing on the planet like it. I'm not hot in the heat, and I'm not cold in the cold. Mm-hmm. And I don't get sweaty. Now, I do use, again, to something Gordon talked about, socks made of material that is not cotton. Right. To wick that moisture away. And this is particularly true for your feet. Yes. Especially if you use those feet foot warmer packs. Yep. Because then you're going to turn yourself into a damp, soon-to-be icicle. <laughs> yes. Uh, not fun. Uh, now, for... Uh, what about for your hands? I haven't found a good system yet. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, I have a set of photographer gloves where the tip of the index finger and the tip of the thumb will peel back. Mm-hmm. Um, and they work well to about minus 10 centigrade. Okay. But after that, their ability to protect my hands goes down the hill a lot. Mm-hmm. And I know from snowmobiling, there's a point where a snowmobile glove just won't do it anymore. Right. You need to go to a mitt. Yes. Because you're keeping your fingers close together and they're using, you're, you're not losing body heat in the gaps. Right. You're reducing the amount of available surface for evaporation. Right. So you may say it's inconvenient. And what a tip that you might think about that works well for snowmobilists is a pair of silks, very thin, bre- um, breathable, wicking gloves mm-hmm. under a good set of mitts. Right. A good set of, again, what everything Gordon said, warm, breathable, 
waterproof mitts that go over uh, these gloves. So when your hands are out of the mitts to make an adjustment with the camera, you can you have the dexterity you need. But for those times when you're not, like when you're walking, mm-hmm. going from place to place, or you're waiting for your time exposure to finish, right. get the mitts on. Yep. Um, does it sound inconvenient? A little bit. But it is to some extent. But frostbite is very inconvenient. Yeah, frostbite means you're you're done for the next week's worth of shooting anyway. Yeah. So some companies that are making the mitts, um, they uh, have been clever enough to sort of split the inside of the mitt so that your index finger goes in one part and your thumb goes in another, and you've got a degree of dexterity Mm -hmm. uh, just employing those two fingers. Now, you can't adjust camera controls, but you can scratch your nose with a degree of proficiency. Yeah. And um, so they've obviously thought about this. Yeah, we see that in, in winter snowmobile mitts and winter ATV mitts. You, I think you would have to because the, uh, trying to ch- I would guess that trying to brake or change gears or... Activate uh, the throttle? Uh, a lot of this stuff is, thumb le- is finger lever right. or thumb lever control. Uh, I, think that, I think that's a really good tip. Now... You brought up something that I remember from being a kid, um, you know, going out on the snowfield, that I think that some people forget about. And that's the deleterious effect of snow reflecting into your eyes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, before I came to Canada, I was reading a lot about, about everything. And I remember back then uh, that they showed pictures of the Inuit wearing snow goggles. And I had no concept of what they meant because I said, well, it doesn't look like there are any lenses in this. So, But what they were doing was, I believe it was a leather strip that went across the face yeah. where they had cut out slits for the eyes. Or animal bone. Or animal bone. I, I don't know what the construction was but that reduced the amount of light coming in because otherwise they would go snow blind uh, on a long period out uh, on on the tundra and it's it's not an unrealistic thing that can happen you know high altitude skiers um if you've ever skied in the western you know western canada or uh, where i've skied the wasatch mountains in utah if you've got a bright sunny day and you're at 10,000 feet, mm-hmm. that snow blindness doesn't take long. Yes. So you want to protect your eyes, uh, whether you need to protect them on the side with curtains uh, because of wind chill, that's something, a choice you get to make. But uh, the light that co- is coming off that snow is polarized. Mm-hmm. Just like the white light coming off water, mm-hmm. and polarized glasses, sunglasses are a pretty good choice, mm-hmm. and you don't have to spend a bazillion dollars on them, right? Because you can get polarized fishing glasses of decent quality for very for a very fair price. 
I mean, you're not spending $600 on some fashion name. It's basically polarized glass, polarized filters right. in, in front of, in, in a frame. That's a very, very good decision. The only caveat for that, take them off when using your viewfinder. <laughs> yes. Uh, not going to work great uh, with that EVF. And definitely don't be wearing them when you're trying to judge exposure. No. <laughs> what, what you see through your EVF with polarized glasses on is something out of a horror movie. And if you're looking at your LCD and you're trying to make value judgments about yeah. exposure, it's not going to be good. I mean, I've seen this happen a lot. The, the photographer looks at the scene. They're wearing their glasses, sunglasses, polarized or not. They say, oh, yeah, that looks great. That's the way it should look on the LCD. They adjust exposure accordingly. And it turns into, you know, a bag of gray muck. Mm -hmm. So in in some ways we've we've made a lot of this sound like um, it's the worst thing you could do on earth, uh, and you're going to have to spend an awful lot of money to get this fancy dancy uh, glove system and feet system and eye system. Well, that's not really true for what we do most of the time. No, we go out for maybe an hour. We go out for two, maybe three, if you're a little demented, like somebody I know. Um, but you... Th th Did you want me to get you a mirror for that? Uh, no, no, I used one this morning. Okay, good. Okay, just uh, checking. It wasn't a happy experience. I, want, I, I just want to be helpful where I can. But uh, all, all of this can mostly be, be managed by a, a reasonable foray into quality stores. If you go to the local kiosk and buy stuff, well, maybe not. But you don't really have to go high-end no, for all don't. of these things. But uh, having the awareness that these things are necessary is probably half the battle. Having a redundancy built into this is the other half of the battle. Because if you can drop something in the snow and lose it, you will. Guaranteed. What, like a memory card? Like a memory card. Oh. Yeah, no kidding. Or, or anything else, lens caps. Black disappears in white very easily. It does. <laughs> and when you go back in the spring, it's not there. <laughs> yep. Gordon and I have been out. And we've said, oh, yeah, you know, I think I, I've lost something. We look on the ground where the snow is melting. We find lens caps. They're, they're not ours. <laughs> but we found them. Yep. Uh, what about hats? Did we say anything about we hats? We didn't say anything about hats. Should you wear a hat? Yes. Yeah. A good hat? Yes. Yes. A hat that wicks moisture? Yes. Yes. Because your hair is already holding moisture. Sure. Well, it's holding moisture on part of your head. <laughs> it's holding moisture on the parts of my head where the hair isn't so thin, it doesn't matter. And you and I both have little fur patches on the fronts of our face. Yes. Which also hold moisture. So, I mean, I think it really, again, it depends on what you're going to do. If you're going to be out there for a while, tukes can work. 
but they're not protecting your neck and they're not protecting the front of your face where there is no insulating material. Right. So having being aware of this, recognize that that hood that you have on your jacket, that's going to come into play. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, your face is going to be exposed. Wear a balaclava. Wear a balaclava that covers everything except your eyes, but have some sort of a balaclava that allows you to breathe out of a... <coughs> Wills, uh, sprout hole, yeah, <laughs> or some, whatever, but some, keep, some something ducting that, system. Because breathing into a barrel is not so good because you just turn into a white sheet of ice in no time. Right. But having a, a ski mask that has an opening over your nose, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, and again, some of the products that we talked about, uh, I will, I will make a plug because it's very inexpensive, and you can get them online through companies uh, like GP Bikes or Fort 9 here in Canada, through Revzilla in America, the climb balaclavas, there's full head, partial face, half face. They are inexpensive. They're made of synthetic materials. Right. And they are long enough not only to protect your face and your head, they're thin enough to go under a hat if you're going to be really cold, and they also protect your neck. Um, and for those of us who have any kind of respiratory challenges, yep. keeping that neck area warm is really, really important. Right. You're going you're to be happier that way. Um, and, I mean, you. I have one of those old Russian fur hats. I know fur is ba- fur bad. It's wonderfully warm. Mm-hmm. And I don't sweat under it. Mm-hmm. And you made note of an old style hat. I mean, I remember these things everywhere when I was growing up. Yep. Uh, Let's go to Alaska. Yeah, the trapper hat. Yep. With the droppable ear flaps. Yep. Um, they'll keep you warm like mad, and you can move the ear flaps up out of the way if you don't need them. Yep. And they breathe great. And. Uh, With thanks to that generation, shall remain nameless, they're also popular and now really expensive. Right. Um, That works great. Now, let's talk quickly about shooting in the snow. Yep. What color is snow? Bright. White. White. Reflective. Highly reflective. Specular. Specular. What's your camera light meter trying to make? Gray. 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 And more gray. Some more gray? Yeah. Uh, Gordon is wearing a wonderful middle gray wicking garment today, by the way. Uh, So what do you do? I'm going to tell you the trick. Exposure compensation plus two, period. End of conversation. Pretty much. No more screwing around. Just go plus two, and you're going to be as we say, close enough for horseshoes. Yep. If you go at zero, it's going to be gray. And you're going to have to bump up the exposure in post, and that's going to raise your noise floor to a point where you're not happy. Yep. Now, Gord, you brought up something about white balance. For those of us who shoot in raw, (coughs) white balance is irrelevant. Yes. But lots of folks shoot in JPEG. Yep. So what's going to happen to them? 
Well, uh, if you uh, if you set white balance, well, firstly, if you set auto white balance, uh, it won't be a white balance. It will be something favoring a blue cast, or at least blue tinge or shadows. Yep. But definitely shifted towards the blue side. Um, because so the color temperature of blue light yep. is high. high. And that's going to be influenced by all that white, absolutely. Yep. Now, if you don't have to, if you're shooting raw, it doesn't matter. Yes. But if you're not shooting raw, Mark, you're shooting with your smartphone. Yep. You might choose to pick a different white balance option and yep. you're shooting JPEG. If you're not shooting JPEG, you don't care. Right. But if you're shooting JPEG or hike, in the case of the Apple, the Apple, uh, Apple yeah. line, you're going to want a different white balance. And the good news about today's smartphones is you have that option. Sure. You can change it to seven ways to sundown. You can also overexpose intentionally. You can. You know, I, I've, you know, on my phone, I can easily dial in plus two. Mm-hmm. And as much as I say the phone's going to do a really good job, it does a better job when I get involved. Right. So think about that for snow. And that's it's really that simple. Yep. Go plus two and try to neutralize any color casts if you're shooting JPEG or hike. Oh, I also read somewhere that uh, setting it to a shadow a shadow setting. Oh, sorry, not, not shadow. Cloudy is what I meant to say. Yeah, you want the yes because cloudy will naturally have a bluish tinge. Right. This will give the effect of warming to it. Right. Um, basically, for us old lighting and old film guys, cloudy light looks like it's been a, had an eighty-two A applied to it. Okay. So you'd apply an eighty-one A, or maybe an eighty-one C warming filter to take the tinge out. Okay. Um, Fortunately, we can do that on our, our digital cameras today. Mm-hmm. So that's really useful. Um, as we bring this conversation to a close, you've put together some marvelous do's and don'ts ah, yes. for cold weather photography. As quick reminders for them, them being our wonderful listeners. <laughs> well, uh, let's go with the really long list. We'll Go with the do's. Okay. Uh, that would be enjoy winter. It's a great time to it's make photographs. It's a lovely photographs. time of the year. And Everything else is a don't. But do go photograph in the wintertime. Do go photograph You will in the get winter. images you cannot get anywhere else, and I don't just mean the snow. Yep. The quality of light is different. The direction of light is different. Your opportunity to see will be different. It's, it's, it's marvelous. But to just finish the, the don'ts, don't use force because things break. Don't carry your camera under the jacket because the condensation in your lens will cripple your bank account. Don't blow on a lens. If you've got ice on there, don't blow on it because now you're out of action until that melts. Uh, don't change your memory cards if you're out there, if you can help it. And if you're going to do it, do it over your camera bag, not over a snow drift, because that's the last of the memory card. 
And if you get snow in your bag, get it out of there because anything you put in there is going to be massacred. Yeah, now this always brings a question. Is it okay to shoot in the snow if it's snowing? Oh, absolutely. Of course it is. It's the same, usually, snow, same is, the snow, same common sense. snow is rain. It's just cold rain. Yeah. If your camera is capable of shooting in the rain, meaning it's weather, weather protected, protected, then you're good. Oh, put a bag over it. Or put a bag over <laughs> it. And you don't have to spend a bag of money on that. A, apparently they're no longer available, but I used to love the, the, the Glad Gator bags because they didn't tear readily. Okay. But a decent plastic bag. A plastic bag with a, with a rubber band over the lens is Yeah, cool. just cut a hole, poke a hole for the lens, and away you go. And you can get your hands up inside it, and it provides a nice wind barrier for the whole camera as well. It's the world's cheapest lens, uh, camera coat. Yep. Um, now, the question will come up, well, do I need a weather-sealed camera? I don't know. What's your use case? You know, if your use case is shooting on islands off the coast of Antarctica, where you've got freezing sea spray... Yep. Your use case is going to be different than those of us who go out into the fields or the trails here in Ontario or the trails wherever you live in the middle of wintertime. We're facing very different situations. Mm-hmm. Shoot accordingly. Yep. Now, if you're going to go buy one of those point-and-shoot cameras, there are great weather, fully weather-sealed options that'll yep. work in the pool, that'll work in the lake. They're terrific. They're like a smartphone, small sensor, yep. almost infinite depth of field, and really good that way. But you don't need to own one to go photograph in the wintertime. Right. And if you do get one, make sure you get one where you can adjust the exposure. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, you've got a lovely shade of gray. Anything else you want to talk about, Gord? Um. So if one, if one were to think, you, we talked about briefly about getting a, a, a camera, but if you knew you were going to be doing a lot of cold weather photography, does it make more sense to try and go towards or try and find a camera with more mechanical bits or high pixel counts or low pixel counts than... The answer, a highly electronic one? First off, the challenge to find a mechanical camera today... Yes, that, no, was, that was a silly point. There, there are no, many. it's not silly because <laughs> it's, it's a reasonable question. And there are folks who will go back to shooting film because they think man, mechanical is going to be better. I'm not going to tell you that one problem with shooting film is that film gets brittle. Oh, yeah. And it will crack and it will break if it gets really cold. Yep. Been there, done that, didn't like it. Avoiding electronics is going to be darn near impossible. Right. So I'm going to say don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just learn to live with it. Follow some of the guidance that have been provided here. Okay. Your electronic camera is going to work really great. Um, Do we care about the megapixel count? I don't care about megapixel count ever. Okay. Because I think That's it's I, I think it's 
I really think for most people it's irrelevant based on how they use their photographs right. and where they view their photographs. Um, find a camera that fits your hands better. That would be good. Yep. Because, you know, the more material between you and the camera, the more awkward it is to use. Yep. So a camera that fits, fits you well is probably a better choice. Um, you asked the question, should we be shooting more in manual than in automatic? If it makes you happy, crazy go nuts, but it's not going to make a better photograph. Right. You're still going to have to compensate for all the reflectance and brightness of that right. snow. So whether, you know, your camera says, oh, okay, well, I need, a, you know, a 500th of a second at F-16, and you say, okay, well, give me plus two, right? and it brings it down to 125th of a second at F-16, and it shoots, or you go to manual and you shoot at one twenty fifth of one one twenty fifth of a second, and F sixteen, you get the same freaking image. Right. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. We're not winding film. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, our mechanical shutters, what we call mechanical shutters today, are nothing like the old mechanical shutters we had in the old days. They're much lighter, they're faster, they're much more efficient. Mm. And if what we're starting to see with some of the new cameras being announced, like, depends where you live, Nikon's Z9, or here in Canada, the Z9, <laughs> there's no mechanical shutter in it at all. Oh boy. It's all electronic. So evolution is going to take us there. When we're choosing our tools, choose the tool that best fits your usual use cases and then deal with the exceptions. Sure. And I think that you're in I really believe that you're going to be in great shape. Okay. Anything else? No, I think uh, beat this to death here. Yes, it was a nice horse. <laughs> so, for the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I've been Ross. I'm Gordon. We'll talk to you again real soon.